Hello, everyone. This is Jim Blackburn, and this is a new podcast, really on the subject of mental health, I suppose. It's titled Hiding in Plain Sight, and this is just the first part. There are going to be several of these parts to get this topic in depth. So if you'll bear with me for a couple of episodes, I hope this will be helpful to you and that you will get something out of it. I need to give you a little bit of a preface before beginning. This is about depression. It's about an illness that is hidden with a smile. It's about therapy, medication, going to a hospital, the stigma of it all, as this was about 30 years ago when this these things took place. It's a lot better now, but still there is some stigma. And I'm going to be as candid as I possibly can be. I don't want to alarm you at all and think that it's just awful, though it is awful. But to think that you can get better, depression is such a treatable illness. I didn't know that. The truth is I did not even know that depression was a mental illness until the early 1990s, which I'm embarrassed and shocked to have to tell you, but that is the truth. But that's the preface. Let me get on with my story. It was a Wednesday, January the 13th, 1993. I was a senior partner in a well-established law firm in Raleigh with offices in Greensboro and Charlotte. I had practiced law for over 20 years. I had started out my career in the Attorney General's office, followed by the United States Attorney's office, where I was the lead prosecutor in a case for which got a lot of notoriety and attention, the prosecution of Jeffrey McDonald for triple murder in 1979. I had joined the law firm in 1987. I'd been there about Oh, five and a half years as of January 1993. That morning, a cold morning, I wound up about 9 or 9.30 in an office with two of my partners, both of whom I'd known for a long time, one of whom I had gone to law school with at UNC Chapel Hill. And they had a folder in front of them with a lot of loose papers indicating that there were some orders written to a uh, family or a man whom I had been representing at no real charge that they asked me if these orders were real as over a land dispute. And I said, no, they, they really weren't real. Well, Jim, we understand from talking to our office in Greensboro that uh, recently you wired $50,000 from BB&T, our local bank in Cary. 
to this person on the Friday after Thanksgiving in 1992. And that this money belonged to another person who was one of my clients who was also an FBI agent. He said, Jim, if we call this person up on the phone and ask him if you had permission to send this money, would he say yes? And I looked him straight in the eye, straight in the eye and said, yes, he would say yes. And one of them said, Jim, we just don't believe you. And I looked back at him and I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. If you'll let me close my eyes for 30 seconds, when I open them, I will tell you the truth. Of course, I hoped that I would die during those 30 seconds. I guess I wanted to be vaporized or something. But anyway, I, I woke up after 30 seconds and told them the truth. And, and to the best of my knowledge, since that morning in January, over 30 years ago, I have not told anything other than the truth about the story that I'm getting ready to tell you now. About two hours after this was over, this meeting was over, I called a friend of mine, Wade Smith, who was a lawyer in Raleigh. I had met him when he was a defense counsel for Jeffrey McDonald number of years before we had tried some cases together and others against each other actually as it turned out i was in my car and had a car phone not a cell phone but a car phone and called him from the phone thinking that he would not be there and i would have to leave a message but he was there and he answered the phone and i said to him wait i am in some trouble I've just left my law firm, probably for good. Can you see me? He said, Jim, what on earth? He said, Jim, have you done anything that's criminal? I said, well, no, I don't think I've done anything criminal, but I've done some things that are stupid. Well, of course, I had done some things that were criminal, but I was in a state of denial. He said, well, Jim, are you getting ready to leave town with a blonde? And I laughed. I said, no, I'm not. He said, well, good. You know, we can we can handle anything else. Well, can you meet me at a at Tripp's restaurant about an hour from now? Yes, I can do that. So I went to this restaurant mid-afternoon, not far from where I lived. Wade showed up with his briefcase, heavy coat as it was cold. Took his coat off, put his brief, briefcase on the floor, and we sat in the booth and asked the waitress to bring us a big pot of coffee. He took out his legal pad, made some notes, and um, he said, tell me the worst thing you've done. I said, well, no way. This is going to take a while. He said, that's okay. I've got all afternoon. So I uh, began to tell him. After about, oh, I don't know, 20, 25 minutes, he put his pen down. He said, well, now, Jim, your, your career has gone a little off track, but we can put you back together. I looked at him askance, and I said, how are we going to do that? And then he gave me the most honest answer I've ever heard. He says, I don't know, but we've got some time. We'll figure this out. But the first thing I want you to do, Jim, the very first thing I want you to do is I want you to go see Gene Spaulding. 
I said, who is that? He said, Jim, she's the very best psychiatrist I know. I send lots of my clients to see her. He said, I said, wait, is that what I am now, one of your clients? He said, yes, you are, as a matter of fact. And you're not going to ever owe me a dime. I said, well, good. I don't can't do that much payment anyway to you. He said, but I want you to see her tomorrow. I'm going to make an appointment, call her this afternoon, see if she can arrange her schedule and see you tomorrow. I said, wait, I am not going to go see Gene Spalding. I'm not going to do it. He said, why? I said, well, Wade, the truth is, you know, I just, I just don't really believe in psychiatry that much. He said, Jim, why? I said, well, you know, Wade is a lawyer. We have psychiatrists all the time talking in court and testifying. You can get one doctor, you can get one doctor to say one thing and another doctor to say the other thing. It's, they cancel each other out. They just say whatever you want them to say. He said, well, Jim, is that what lawyers do anyway? I said, well, that's probably true. Anyway, I'm going to call and get an appointment. So he did. The next morning, I was still at the firm. I called Gene Spalding's office, talked to her secretary. His name was Tammy. I said, Tammy, this is Jim Blackburn. I have an appointment with Dr. Spalding. I'm going to have to cancel it today because I'm too busy with legal work. That was not true, of course. I just didn't want to go. Well, the word got around pretty quick that I had canceled the appointment, which upset everyone because Gina changed her schedule to accommodate me. And uh, Wade was upset. My family was upset. The firm wasn't real happy either. So they remade the appointment for the following day at 3 o'clock in Durham on University Drive. It's about 25 to 30 miles from our office in Raleigh. The firm said, Jim, you're going to go, and we're going to ask your secretary to follow you in a car to drive all the way down I-40 to Durham and not to leave until you have walked into the building. And that's how I went to see Dr. Spalding the first time. That was my first trip to a psychiatry office. My secretary following me in a car 30 miles out of town to make sure I went. I want to say to you right now that there's a great line from Gracie Allen, the long-ago actress and wife of George Burns, who when she passed away, left a note for her husband that he found on a table in their home. And it said this, George, do not put a period in your life where God has only put a comma. And so what I want to say here to you on this podcast is in your own life, when you have adversities, or difficulties, or you think you can't go on, or something awful has happened. Not to minimize that at all, but to remember you should never, ever put a period where God has only placed a comma. And so I was in the process when I went to Durham that day to see Gene Spalding of beginning to work 
on my comma. I walked into the office, sat in the reception room. It was very small. was given some paperwork to fill out, you know, such as health insurance and that sort of thing. Well, it wasn't going to take long to fill out that piece of paper because I didn't have any health insurance anymore. It was being canceled. I was unemployed. That wasn't going to take long because I had just resigned that day from the law firm. I didn't have much money because I'd had a draw check of a lot of money that I'd given back to the firm from the previous year. So it was not a good afternoon for me. And suddenly this bright, shiny lady walked out, stuck out her hands, said, you must be Mr. Blackburn. And I looked back at her and smiled and said, and you must be Dr. Spalding. She said, yes, you come in with me. We went into her office. And, you know, I got to tell you, while I was sitting there in the uh, lobby, I was wondering what she looked like. Was she young? Was she old? What was her office like? Did they have a sofa that I was going to lay down? How much did she charge an hour? How was I going to pay her? What would I do when I left? How honest was I going to be? What questions would she ask? Would she sit there and just look at me and listen? What, what was it all about? I never talked to a psychiatrist in my life. She had two easy chairs in front of her desk, not much on top of her desk. She didn't sit at her desk, actually. She sat in the chair next to me. And the first thing she said to me was, I've got about 45 minutes. Why don't you tell me why you're here and what you think I can do for you? And so I started in to tell her my story of the past at the law firm, uh, a little bit about my career and the things that I had done and telling stories to some clients and sending money to clients that wasn't theirs to get. And then the worst thing of all, sending the money to the one client through the trust account. I knew I'd never get in trouble for trust accounts because I didn't deal with trust accounts. I knew that'd be the one thing I would never do until I did. Why, I can only tell you, I don't know, except I thought my back was to the wall and there was no way out. That, of course, was wrong. There's, there's always a way out that's honorable, and that is simply to tell the truth. But that didn't register in my brain at that point. So I told Jean Spalding all of this. She put her pencil down. She patted my wrist and said, Jim, I want to tell you something. I want to help you. I want to be on your side. Whatever you tell me, I won't tell anyone. I won't tell your family. I won't tell your lawyers. I will tell no one what you say to me unless you first tell me it is okay to do so. That was the beginning of trust. 
If you want someone to trust you and to tell you secrets, I think one of the ways to do that is to let that person know that you are on that person's side and that whatever that person says to you, you will hold it in the strictest of confidences unless that person says it's okay to tell people or someone else. We talked for the 45 minutes. I got up to leave, and she said, Jim, Jim, I would want to know if I, could I buy an hour of your time next week for another meeting? And I looked at her in somewhat, somewhat stunned disbelief and said, why? Well, Jim, I think you have some issues. I looked at her and said, what, what, what kind of issues do you think I have? She said, well, I'm, I, th I think you've got some depression issues from what you've told me. And I looked at her. I said, Gene, no one is going to think or believe that I have depression. Not anybody, not my friends, not my family, not the law firm, not other lawyers, no one. She just continued to stare at me. And I, so I went on. I said, you know, Gene, I'm a happy person I smile all the time. Then I smile for her and said, see, and she said, Jim, I don't know what's going on with your legal career. That's not my job. My job is you personally. And I'm telling you, you have issues and I need to talk to you about that. We need to get to the bottom of this and try to make you better and get you through this. So I shrugged and sighed and stammered and said, okay, I would agree to see her the next week, which I think the meeting was on the following Wednesday. And I went to the meeting. Later that week, on Friday, I met uh, one of my lawyers and great friends, Rick Gammon, at his law office. And he said to me, Jim, we have just gotten a letter faxed by the North Carolina State Bar saying that they are going to have a motion to file for a hearing in Superior Court on Monday seeking to keep you from retaining any client funds. And I said, Rick, this is not necessary. I don't have any client funds. I'm not practicing law right now. This is just not, this is just no reason for this. And he looked at me and said, Jim, you can't stop the hurt. It's getting ready to come to you and, and to your family and friends. And, and I looked right back at him and I said, oh, yes, I can. Don't tell me I can't. He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, it's simple. If I'm not here on Monday, then this whole thing is moot. He looked back at me pretty sternly. He said, I don't want to get a call in the middle of the night telling me I no longer have a friend. I said, well, Rick, to heck with you and to heck with a bar and walked out of his office. Well, I guess this sort of upset everybody. He called Wade, called Gene Spalding. Meanwhile, I had a plan. My plan was to, this is when newspapers were still uh, important. I was going to go around to all the driveways in Raleigh and Eastern North Carolina on Monday morning and take up all the newspapers so that uh, they couldn't read it. This is really before the Internet. If Santa Claus could deliver presents to children, you know, in a night, well, surely I could do this. And then, of course, 
a minute later, I realized how stupid I was thinking and wrong I wasn't as just plain dumb. I tell you this silly story because I was in panic mode. And I didn't know where to turn. When someone is thinking that way, he or she doesn't think real clearly, doesn't think clearly at all. And so, you know, I let that go. I really wasn't worried about the hearing in the Superior Court or the what the bar was going to do. What was really bothering me, what was really concerning me was that the newspaper would print the story because I knew that they would check what was happening in the courthouse on Monday, and once it was filed, they'd print a story and run it on Tuesday, which is, of course, what happened. I was worried about what everybody would think. I didn't want to be embarrassed and humiliated. I'd never been embarrassed and humiliated in my life. And I sure as heck didn't want to have that happen in the newspaper, for goodness sakes. The fear of what other people would say, the fear of being transparent and open, the fear of telling people the mistakes you've made was very present in me at that time. Very present. And I would go to almost any extremes to avoid that happening. I wanted to be perceived as Jim Blackburn, the attorney, not Jim Blackburn, the screw-up. On Saturday, the next day, I got a phone call that Wade and Rick wanted me to meet with them at their office, at Wade's office. I met with Jean Spalding that morning, and she gave me a prescription it's the first prescription I ever got for Prozac. That was the main drug for depression at that time. I was actually pretty excited to uh, get the prescription for Prozac because in my brain that was thinking, well, maybe there is something wrong with me, and this will help. I was a person in search of something wrong to find, I guess. But anyway, I met Rick and Wade in the early afternoon at Wade's office, and they kept trying to talk with me and what they wanted to do they they wanted to put me somewhere because they thought this was going to be in the newspaper and they were worried about whether or not i might hurt myself truthfully what they were saying was they didn't want me to kill myself when this came out in the newspaper i'd been very high and now it's getting ready to go very low very fast I refused. I did not want to go to anywhere. What they wanted was to go to a hospital, a mental hospital, psychiatric hospital, somewhere where I could be locked up and they know where to be. That's what they wanted. They wanted me to do it voluntarily. I don't know whether if I had refused ultimately to do that, they would have had me go involuntarily. I don't know. I, I never did find that out. But anyway, they wanted me to go, and finally I kept refusing. And finally, Wade, who was just totally exasperated with me, he stood up and he said, Jim, do you, do you remember the movie Arthur? There may be some on this podcast who've never heard of the movie Arthur. But for those of you who are a little bit older, it was a great movie. It was in 1981. And Arthur is a New York socialite alcoholic drunk. 
who calls off of a wedding because he's not in love with his bride-to-be, but is in love with someone else who is a, works in a pastry shop, a coffee shop, played by Liza Minnelli. At the end of the movie, he calls the wedding off, and the father-in-law to be almost kills him, pulverizes him, and he stands in front of the church, all beaten to smithereens, and tells the congregation, "Well, I'm not going to be seeing you anymore because I'm going to be poor." And then he says, "And I need to go to the hospital." And then he falls down on the floor at the front of the church. And collapses. He, of course, saves his inheritance, which he thought he was going to lose because of his willingness to be truthful and to follow his heart. His grandmother does not disinherit him. Wade stands up with a coat and towel in his office, which was not a large office. He says, Jim, you, you are Arthur. You need to say to everyone you know, that you aren't going to be seeing them for a while because you're going to be poor. And you're not going to be a lawyer anymore. And the truth of the matter is, Jim, you need to go to the hospital. And with that, he falls down and collapses on the floor in his own law office. I'm sitting in a chair in absolute disbelief, but a little humor. I chuckle a little bit, and I get up, and I walk over, and I have a conversation with him while he's laying on the floor. Rick is sitting in another chair. I said, wait, have you lost your mind? What are you doing? And he said, Jim, we're worried about you. We don't, this is going to be in the paper, I think. I just think it is. We're worried that you've got to be safe. We want you to be safe. That's our main concern, not anything else but your safety. I said, so you think this will be in the newspaper? Jim, I absolutely believe you're going to be in the newspaper. I looked at him. I said, okay. If I decide to go to the hospital, where do you think I would go? He said, Jim, we have two beds and two hospitals ready for you Monday morning. We've already lined it up. Gene Spalding's already helped us take care of that. I said, where are they? Well, one is in Durham County General Hospital. I said, okay, where, where's the other one? The other one is Duke University Hospital. And you think this will be in the paper? Yes. Well, if it's going to be in the paper... Wade, I want to go to Duke. He said, okay, why? It should be obvious, Wade. Duke just sounds so much more better and classier and uptown than Durham County General, for God's sakes. I want to go to Duke. He couldn't believe I'd said that. Got up, made the call to Gene Spalding, and it was set. You know, in looking back at that time, 
I recognize now how really fortunate I was to have a family that supported me, lawyers who supported me, a doctor who supported me, and she came up with two beds available on a moment's notice in two separate hospitals. Because today, folks, getting a bed in a psychiatric hospital or any hospital like that, for that matter, is difficult to do. And you hear horror stories of people having to spend time in an ER waiting to get a bed available in a psychiatric hospital. And here I had the choice of two and chose one because it would read better in the paper, for God's sakes. How immature and stupid that was. But that was the way it was, and that's how I made the decision to go there. On Monday, I went, met Jean Spalding at her office first, and she said, Jim, you're not going to be there as long as we want. I, I wanted you to be there for two or three weeks, but insurance is only going to pay for a week, so you're probably only going to be there a short stay like a week. But when you get out in a week, you're going to come see me the following week and spend every day with me in therapy and treatment and tests and stuff. We're going to find this out and kick this thing and get this thing done. I said, okay. Here in the space of about 10 days, I had gone from representing someone in Superior Court, criminal court, who was charged with a murder indictment and representing him to losing my job, going to see a psychiatrist, having two lawyers, and now going to a hospital. And it was ready for this to all come down publicly. It was a swift fall done by my own hand. I just want to say to you at the outset, I am grateful that I went to Duke Hospital. I am grateful that I went to see Gene Spalding. This is just the first part. It gets better, actually, after this. Because you get into treatment, you get to spend time with a doctor. I spent a lot of time there. I was in group therapy. I was actually in therapy with Gene Spawning for, gosh, two, two and a half years. Not just once a month, sometimes twice a week. Not even including the group therapy. I was on Prozac for two and a half years. I loved Prozac. I'd probably take it again if I could get a prescription, but I can't. It created a floor for me beyond what, below which I would not go. It was in seeing Gene Spalding, and it was in seeing the newspapers, the stories that were so tough, to recognize that I would be okay. That I can walk through this. I think depression can rob you 
of so much, but it can also open a door to getting better and living a better life and a happier life. There's this great line from the fifth chapter of Psalms, the second verse. Weeping may stay for a night, but joy comes in the morning. It may be true that you have to go through the weeping part first before you get to the joy part second. Hiding in plain sight. That's what I had been doing. This is part one. I hope you will come back next week for part two.